Well, good morning. I wonder if you're hearing in Mark's gospel that there's an awful lot of arrangement Mark seems to be doing. Uh, This parable that we're looking at this morning will actually be the second time we're looking at this parable. Jesus told the parable, and uh, now he is going to explain uh, that uh, parable. Uh, But Mark's uh, gospel is uh, very, very structured. Uh, you see right in the middle of the parable and the explanation of the parable uh, that statement from Isaiah chapter 6 that uh, Elder uh, Woody Brower just uh, read to us, a statement about uh, why Jesus teaches in the form of parables. It's right there in between the telling of the parable and the explaining of the parable. Now, I let you go last week by uh, just uh, drawing your attention to the parable itself without the explanation of the parable. And I'm sorry if that frustrated you. My desire was that you would uh, let the parable itself uh, simmer in your minds and in your hearts for a week before we come to see how Jesus then explains the parable itself. So we'll be looking this morning at Mark chapter uh, 4, beginning at verse 13, which, as I said, is where he explains the parable of the sower. A little theologians, of course, we're happy that you're here as well. I would like for you to work on a drawing for me. I'd like for you to draw a city, but it's a special kind of city. It's a city that is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old. And not only that, over the course of these hundreds of years, the city hasn't been very well cared for. In fact, it's uninhabited. It's so poorly cared for. So if you can work on that uh, drawing, uh, I think you'll see very quickly in the sermon why I've asked you to do that. Our passage again is uh, from Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, beginning at verse 13, the explanation of the parable of the sower. Would you please join me in prayer? Father, we know that you speak... And we know that what you have said to us, among many other things, is that we are dull of hearts, blind of eyes, heavy of ears. We pray, Father, that you would uh, penetrate those forces of opposition against your word, that by your Holy Spirit we might hear and understand. Teach us, Father, by your Spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So Mark chapter 4. Uh, beginning at verse 13. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves but endure it for a while. Then, when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold, 
and a hundredfold. This is the word of our Lord. Well, I don't mean to boast, but I do want to let you know that I have seen with my own eyes the Roman Forum. Uh, I have been to Rome. I love the city of Rome, and I have seen the Roman Forum. But, of course, anyone can see it online. I must add this. There's really not much to see when you've seen the Roman Forum. Uh, You see temples or evidence of temples because there are columns. You see basilicas, uh, small places of worship, but uh, they look a little too dangerous to enter. And you see where there might have been rows of uh, columns, might have been a large, beautiful mural of the world behind the row of columns, but really you don't see much of anything but columns and a ruinous wall. You see a big dry field, not much grows there at all. You see lots of bits and pieces of architecture lying about. It is organized, but still lying on the ground. And there are lots of sidewalks, and uh, one thing I'll never forget are metal guardrails everywhere so that you can't go into the ruins themselves, but really, Uh, what damage could you do? But there you have it, sidewalks with lots of uh, black guardrails. Well, that's the eternal city. And it turns out it's not so eternal after all. In fact, if you were to go into the Roman Forum, you'd have to climb over the guardrails, of course, but if you were to go into the Roman Forum and to uh, scatter seeds, I'm pretty sure that nothing you scatter is going to grow. There's just not much there. It looks enough to be familiar. You can kind of see that it was a great place once, but it's still ruined, a ruined city. And we know what ruinous looks like. And we can look into some of our families and we can see that our family is ruinous. I hope that's not the immediate household but you can look back in your family tree and you can see evidence of ruin, relationships that weren't what they should have been, hard relationships, difficulties. Familiar, of course, there's a father and there's a child, there's siblings, but also evidence of a great deal of pain. And when the Bible talks about us as people, the Bible says that our hearts are actually ruined. We were born ruined. There are many things that are familiar about, uh, about God's intended purpose in us, his thumbprint, as it were. We are, after all, created in his image, and uh, there are residual qualities of that image that are still a part of us. But nonetheless, we are ruined. And what we need is we need life, new life, a new creation. God has created us, but we are ruined in Adam. And what we need is we need recreation. And Jesus has here told us a parable in which we see evidence of this recreation, a seed going into the ground and bearing, well, not just fruit, but bountiful fruit. And when Jesus retells us that parable, we actually learn from the parable that it's really a parable about hope for ruined hearts. This is what Jesus is telling us. 
In fact, ruined hearts are able to flourish. They can grow and uh, develop. But ruined hearts are able to flourish only by accepting the word of the message of Jesus. It's the only way ruined hearts, well, are unruined. In fact, beyond unruined, made bountiful. Bountiful beyond imagination. You see, at the end of Jesus' first telling of the parable in verse 13, uh, Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, I'm sorry, verse 9, He who has ears to hear, uh, let him hear. But now as he opens this parable, he's going to say, Do you not understand the parable? Well, he knows his audience, the audience of disciples and those who seem to be uh, close to the disciples. But Jesus, he knows his audience. He says, do you not understand this parable? And then he goes on and he says, how then will you understand all the parables? Do you see that in verse 13? You know, Jesus uses two different words for the word understand in that parable. And when he does so, he's uh, almost enticing his disciples and those around the disciples, saying, do you not understand? Do you not intuit? Do you not have a sense of intuition about this parable? And then he goes on and he says, how then will you understand a different word, a word for experiencing all of the parables? Is that true for us? Do we need help? Of course we need help. In fact, we have been told that we need help, that passage in between the first telling of the parable and the explanation of the parable, uh, that passage uh, that shows up in verses 11 and 12, where there's a quote from Isaiah chapter 6. We need help understanding the parables because we need help understanding the message of Jesus. We are like that audience of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah's preaching ministry was to go out into the city of Jerusalem and to tell people that you're seeing, but you're not perceiving. That you're hearing, but you're not understanding. And this is a very deep matter. This is the very center of Isaiah's preaching ministry. He has to go out into the city of Jerusalem and to tell them that their hearts are dull, that their ears are heavy, and that their eyes are blind. And I want you, because I think Jesus wants us, to consider that that is very much who we are. We need that kind of help. We need Isaiah to tell us about God. And Jesus, he has come to tell us about God's saving purposes. How do we gain understanding? We listen to the explanation that Jesus provides. And then we not only gain understanding, but we gain life if we not merely hear but actually accept. Because after all, ruined hearts are able to flourish only by accepting the word of the gospel. And I want us, as we begin, to uh, go uh, back one week, and I want you to reconsider some first impressions that I suggested we ought to have as we first hear the parable. Do you remember I said last week that when you first hear this parable, there ought to be a sense of irritation about it. There's certainly irritation with regards to the original audience. Do you remember then? Do you remember why they came to hear Jesus teach? They had heard all of the great things that he had been doing. They came because they wanted him to do those things for him. And yet Jesus, he gets in a boat and he pushes himself away from the land. 
and he instead, he teaches them with his mouth. But there is an irritation. They want action. That's why they're there. But instead, he, Jesus, he gives them a message. He speaks to them. Uh, they came asking that Jesus would do things for them, and instead he speaks. Now, a little bit of a hint, the speaking of Jesus is the doing of Jesus. But that was an impression that they got when they heard the parable. Another impression they got was that this sower is very, very persistent. The sower of the parable even seems to be indiscriminate. Not like the sower of Isaiah 28. The sower of Isaiah 28 is planting only in specific places, harrowing the ground, judging and punishing, and then only putting that seed in certain parts of the field. But this sower, scattering it everywhere. That would be an impression. Another impression would be the opposition uh, in the parable is actually very graphic. What do the birds do? Aren't birds so cute? Birds, they flutter about and they land and occasionally they eat seed, but that's okay. There's plenty more seed. But as Jesus tells the parable, the, seed, the, the birds, they actually devour the seed and the, and the sun, it scorches vegetation and the thorns, they choke vegetation and the, the language is so graphic. And, and in fact, in the parable itself, uh, Jesus leaves you hanging because there isn't any soil at all. He doesn't even mention the word soil until the very, very end. But then at the very end, there's this astounding promise. There is good soil, but not only that, this seed is super seed, earth-changing seed, poverty-eradicating seed. It's a seed that grows 30, 60, 100-fold. And so the overall sense from first hearing this parable is that there is some kind of hopefulness in the parable. It does seem rather slight, as you're hearing this parable for the first time, you're yearning for that sower. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Don't stop spreading that seed. And then you're yearning for the survival of the seed, that the seed would hit the right ground, that the seed uh, would grow and be able to combat against the opposition. And so you're yearning for the survival of the seed. And of course, you're yearning for the promise at the very end of that glorious bounty, a bounty that no eye has beheld but before moving on, there is tension as you hear this parable for the first time. If you think about it in farming terms, the sower is up against not just fallow land, but clearly in the parable, the sower is up against untilled land, wild land. It's not merely furrow, or fallow rather, it's actually untilled. And so, at the end of the parable, you would walk away having some sense of hopefulness, some kind of yearning, but at the same time, the tension is unavoidable. This land, it's so disagreeable. How will anything grow? How will anything yield bounty? Well, that's the question we ought to bring into the explanation of the parable. How will this ruined land ever become rich with bounty? There's a few things that Jesus wants us to see, and I think they, they stand out almost as if he has already highlighted the parable for us. Verse 14 is very important. 
Jesus actually describes the, the source of that rich bounty. Before I say any more, uh, there's a, a source of that bounty, there's an experience of that bounty, and there's a promise of that bounty. How will the land become rich with bounty? Source, experience, and promise. First, the source of that bounty is in verse 14. The sower sows the word. The sower sows the word. How sweet and simple that is, isn't it? There's this seed, and the seed is the word. The word that's used here is logos, and it shows up all over this parable. Clearly, the word is very important, just as seeds are very important. And generally, this word is the message of Jesus. We've seen this word uh, before in Mark's gospel. This is the, the message of Jesus. Later on, Jesus is going to say that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is the message of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, that which people are gathering to whether they want to or not, here because that's what Jesus delivers to them. But it's, it's also the word that uh, Jesus tells his disciples to preach. So uh, this message is the message that comes off of the lips of Jesus but it's also the message that comes off the lips of the church, so long as the church is preaching the message of Jesus. Uh, the very commissioning of the disciples in chapter 16 of Mark, this is the message of salvation that the disciples are commanded to preach. Preach the message of Jesus, the logos of Jesus. The seed is the word, and the sower is sowing the word. It seems so simple, doesn't it? Uh, the word is being sowed by the sower, and it would be fair to ask, who is this sower? Well, who else has been teaching with words at this point in Mark's gospel? You go back to Mark chapter 2, and we have a scene there where there are many people gathered in the house of Jesus such that there was no more room, not even at the door. Do you remember that? Mark 2 verse 2. And what was Jesus doing in the center of that house that is crowded? Jesus is preaching the word, the logos, to them. Well, this is what Jesus does. Jesus then has himself interwoven into this parable that he is the one, the sower, who is sowing the word. And all of those things that we think about this sower begin to uh, attach themselves to Jesus. What Jesus is saying is that the ruined land will not become rich without, well, without his own delivery of the message. His preaching is the very source of the bounty. The sower sows the word. The experience of that bounty is actually at the very end of the parable in verse 20. That's where I'd like for us to look for a moment. The word is sown on good soil in verse 20. It's soil that's described here uh, by Jesus as he explains the parable. The good soil is the hearing of the word and the accepting of the word. The hearing and the accepting of the word. And only then will the word produce fruit, the experience. Now, the experience of the ruined heart becoming rich with bounty really is an important part of the parable. In fact, most of the words are about that experience. So I want to set this aside for the conclusion. 
The source of the bounty of the ruined land is the sower sowing the word. The experience is that word in the life of the hearer. But let's jump forward to the promise. The promise we have to understand is being deeply significant. The word of Jesus actually has the power to bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Now, this actually is beyond astounding. This everyone would hear as being completely impossible. There's no seed that has ever done this before. And the reason we need to understand how remarkably impossible such a thing is, is because we need to understand that as Jesus is preaching his word, he's preaching a word not just about individual salvation. He's preaching a word about the very kingdom of God dawning upon uh, the present age. Look at verse 11. Does not Jesus say to his disciples, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God? Let's not be too quick to think that the message of Jesus is all about my salvation. The message of Jesus is about God's plan to bring all things to restoration. The message of the gospel is about God's manner of restoring all things. The very consummation of his kingdom comes about by the word of God in the Son of God. The bounty is not just large, not just unprecedented. The bounty is barely believable. The kingdom of God is realized on earth only as the word is preached. Uh, This uh, bounty is actually enfolded deep inside of the seed itself. Now just think about that for a moment. As we think about the expansion of the kingdom of God, the coming of that kingdom, the growth of that kingdom, we almost want that kind of bounty to be promised by anything other than the preaching of the word. In fact, the preaching of the word, it just seems, well, it seems so primitive. And we're modern people. The preaching of the word might work when the world is very simple, easy to deal with. But now the world is so complex. And we may even say it this way, that the opposition to the gospel is so uh, dark indeed that really... The preaching of the word, that's how the bounty comes. That's how a realization of the kingdom of God comes. There's so many better things in our minds for bringing about the reign of God. I mean, just consider, wouldn't the reign of God be uh, more seminally brought about by something big and grand? Not the simple preaching of the gospel. Even a child can do that. Something enormous, something like, let's say, political victory. Something that grand, that magnificent. That's how the kingdom of God is realized in the world, isn't it? Or maybe it's by moral integrity. More and more people living morally significant lives, that seems like a real piece of machinery that can bring about the kingdom of God. He's moral, isn't he? Well, think about this. Do you think perhaps 
uh, cultural reassertion is going to bring about the kingdom of God. As we go out into the world and as we uh, transform artifacts of the world, uh, transform uh, cultural events, transform uh, cultural uh, pursuits uh, into Christian pursuits, maybe uh, that cultural reassertion is that which will bring about the kingdom influence of God. The promise of bounty in this parable is tightly attached to the preaching of the word. The message of Jesus. And that's very difficult for us to believe. But I want you to understand, if you believe that God is sovereign, do you divide that sovereignty in such a way that you allow God to be sovereign in some capacity, but not in every capacity of his being? God is sovereign, for instance, in creation. God sovereignly creates and he sovereignly sustains. Isn't that just music to your ears? Feels good even saying it, and it should. It's taught in Scripture. But do we doubt that God is sovereign in recreation, sovereign in the conversion of individuals? Or do we believe that individuals themselves decide their status before God? Do we allow God to be sovereign in creation and, uh, and uh, only creation? Or will we allow God to be sovereign in creation and sovereign in new creation? How it is that a ruined heart is made a heart of bounty. He's sovereign, isn't he? And what Jesus is telling his disciples is he's saying that kingdom fruitfulness in a ruined world is promised only through the message of Jesus. That's how kingdom fruitfulness happens in a world that is ruined. And it's also how kingdom fruitfulness happens in a heart that is ruined. Well, there's a, a source of that bounty the sower sows the word, and there is a promise of that bounty. Well, the source of the message of Jesus is preached first by Jesus and then those who follow him. We, as believers, have a rich opportunity to proclaim Jesus in a word because it is the power of God unto salvation. What a blessing that is to tell our friends and family members about Jesus. What a blessing it is to wear Jesus beautifully in our lives such that not just our speech, but our actions too proclaim who Jesus is. The source is the message of Jesus, and the promise is something that is well beyond human fashioning. The promise is the very power of God exercised in a world that he has created such that he would bring all things to fruition. But you see, right in the middle of the parable, right, where oftentimes we get lost, that's the experience of the bountiful land. You see, there's an application in verse 20, or a hint of an application, that there is a word that is sown on good soil. And Jesus describes that the good soil is a soil that hears the word and accepts the word. And only this will release the power of that seed to bring forth the kingdom of God. Now, this is really important for us to notice. It's God's will that he would work through the word being heard and accepted. 
This is his intended plan. He unfolds his kingdom not by his raw power, but by a word. This is how he does it. And we may complain all we like. We may be unsatisfied that it's not big and grand quite enough for us. But this is how the kingdom influence of God expands. This is why our calling is to preach the word. But we see then, don't we, that this word, the logos, it must be heard. Everyone in the parable hears the word. Do you notice that? Regardless of not seeing the word soil until at the very, very end of the parable, everyone in the parable hears the word. That shouldn't be ignored. The word must be heard, and this is our calling to make that word known. But there's never going to be bounty if the word is not merely heard, but also accepted. That's what we read in verse 20. It has to be received into the heart, it has to be adopted. These are actually reasonable ways to understand the word for accepted, received, and adopted. You know, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew says that the word must not, not merely be heard, but grasped or even applied, Matthew 13, 23. And Luke says that the word uh, needs to be not merely heard, but it needs to be held fast in our hearts. That's 8.15 in Luke's gospel. Now, everyone in the gospel hears the word, but not everyone in the gospel accepts it or receives it or holds it fast in their hearts. Now, uh, owing to the the, uh, great commentary by William Hendrickson, he says that really, if you look at the three kinds of non-soils in this parable, uh, you really have three different kinds of hearts that are described. And I'd like to go through this quickly. I think it's pretty obvious Uh, Just look uh, as an example at verse 15. The seed that falls on a path that is uh, when they hear the word, uh, the birds, Satan, immediately comes and takes it away. Takes the word that has been sown in them. And Hendrickson says this is evidence of an unresponsive heart. Uh, A heart that uh, hears, but it doesn't stay there for very long. It's almost as if it's heard merely because, well, they're trying to be polite. And obviously, Satan here is not ultimately to be blamed. If Satan were ultimately to be blamed, why would we have Mark 4, verse 9? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If Jesus knew that Satan was simply going to take the word from that individual, why then would he ever say to that individual, he who has ears to hear, let him hear? The blame's not on Satan. The blame's on the hearer. Hendrickson says that they are indifferent to the word. It's almost like the hard earth of the Roman forum. It's hard, so hard it doesn't even take water. As quickly as they hear the word, they forget the word. And as they do so, they're in effect cooperating with the very will of Satan. That's exactly what he would like. There's a sense in which they're hostile to the word. They just, they don't have time for the word. And we actually can hear a bit of an echo in our own Christian lives. Have we ever felt that indifference to God's Word, even as Christians? I I hope that you're okay admitting that. There's something here uh, for those who refuse to believe. You're refusing to believe because you're unresponsive. Uh, You may be hostile or you may be just indifferent, but there's something for the Christian to hear as well. Be wary of that in your own hearts. We know what it feels like to be indifferent to the message of Jesus. 
But here, it's an indifference that seems to have eternal ramifications. They have unresponsive hearts. But in verse 16, it's different, isn't it? Here uh, is a different kind of people who uh, apparently they receive it with joy. And Hendrickson says, these are not unresponsive hearts. These are impulsive hearts. They're people who immediately respond, and they do so with joy. But just as immediately as they respond with joy, they fall away. You see, immediately shows up there twice. On the surface, they accept the word, and they accept the word readily. But something happens in life, and it seems to happen quickly. Uh, He uses the word tribulation and affliction. Uh, Some kind of persecution arises. If you look on verse 17, 17, it's the kind of uh, affliction that has to do with the word itself. There's something that this individual knows that they lose because they want to believe this word. They lose by accepting this word. Now, this is subtle, but it's also real. In fact, there's an example of this when uh, John writes about the life of the church well after the ascension of Jesus. And John says that there are people who went out from us. They were ministers, apparently. They were with us in the life of the church and the expansion of the ministry of Jesus. But he says in 1 John 2.19 that they went out from us, and they went out from us because they never actually belonged to us. I think that's similar to verse 17. There's a people that hear the word and immediately receive it with joy, but they have no deep root in it, and they leave just as quickly. Now, this is a warning to those who uh, listen with insincerity. You receive impulsively, but you might leave impulsively, but there's something even here for the Christian. How timid are we in our belief that God is really in control? How much affliction will we endure for the word of Jesus? How much persecution will we endure? Do we know that affliction and persecution will never unseat him? No matter how dire things look in the world, no matter how dire things look in our immediate circumstances, Jesus will never leave us, and those afflictions and persecutions, they will never unseat him. We need to hear this because as Christians, we too struggle with impulsive hearts. Let's not be quick to leave. Unresponsive hearts, impulsive hearts, and then finally preoccupied hearts in verse 19. If you're here, if you're listening to the live stream and you uh, are someone who uh, doesn't believe in Jesus, you're still uh, critiquing him, uh, this is a great verse for you for a couple of reasons. Number one, it tells you those things that are probably larger in your uh, mind and affections than they should be. They crowd out a belief in Jesus. You need to hear what those things are and ask yourself, are these things preventing me from believing in Jesus? But another reason you should uh, listen very carefully to verse 19 if you're not a believer is because you need to hear that Christians actually struggle with these things as well. This is something that is a part of ordinary Christian life. Look what Jesus says. He says in verse 19 that there are those who hear the word, but they never ultimately accept it because the word is choked out. Now, these are subtleties, aren't they? Uh, There's something about the devouring of the word that is, well, very binary. It's devoured. It's gone. But choking is a bit more analog. It happens over time. 
And so it can be kind of subtle, but look at, look at what, uh, what Jesus says. He says that there are cares of the world that begin to grow large. There are matters in our lives that are good, but they should never be ultimate. And these cares of the world, they actually become uh, ultimate such that we, we just can't imagine saying yes to Jesus because of them. Money is too important to me. My family is too important to me. My reputation is more important to me. These are good things to be thinking about, but they're not ultimate things. And so the cares of the world can sometimes mitigate against saying yes to Jesus. He says that the deceitfulness of riches, not just the riches themselves, but that, that powerful delusion behind the, the, the accumulation of wealth that tells you that more wealth is what's going to make my problems go away. If problems arise, more wealth is always the answer. And that too mitigates against saying yes to the gospel. And Jesus gives a third. He says, desires for other things. This is harder to see, things that should not be desired under any circumstances. We actually have desires for those things. That could be what Jesus is referring to. So things that are always sinful, like uh, adultery or sexual sin or uh, uh, addictions, these kinds of things are actually desires that we ought not have, or it could be uh, desires that on the surface are okay, but we have a ravenous desire for them. We crave them to such a degree that we actually cast aside other things. I think of the example of our hobbies, those things that we do in our leisure, that we can have a ravenous desire for those things that they actually push away other more appropriate desires like uh, care for your spouse and your family. All three of these things, they're listed by Jesus saying that uh, these are things that actually serve to choke out the staying power of the message of Jesus in the lives of individuals. And, and, it's, and it's meant for those who refuse to uh, believe in the gospel. They just want to hear and hear and hear and hear and never accept. And Jesus says it could be because your heart is just so preoccupied. But as Christians, we need to understand that we have very preoccupied hearts ourselves. And he says in verse 19 that even for our lives, these things can enter in. Do you see that in verse 19? They can enter in and indeed will enter in, but they should never choke us. Now let's back out of this uh, experience of the, of the uh, bounty of the, uh, the seed of the message of Jesus. And, and, and let's ask ourselves this, how then do I hear and accept how do I hear and accept? Jesus, he's the sower, and he's sowing his word. You have to hear that, and you have to accept that. This is the ministry of the church. This is what the church is to do, not to proclaim themselves, but to proclaim Jesus as the great sower, and he is persistently sowing his word and will continue to do so until he comes again in person. You need to hear that and accept that Jesus is the sower. Now this word, it may seem insignificant to you, but what you also need to hear and accept is that this word is not insignificant to Jesus. To him, this is the very power of the Father for salvation. This is the very entrance of the kingdom of God. This is God's very plan. And you have to hear and accept that while the word may seem insignificant to you, it's not insignificant to Jesus. 
If the word seems insignificant to the church, even still you must know and accept that that word is not insignificant to Jesus. And you also need to hear and accept that the promise associated is uh, Jesus' own glorious objective for the world, that the promise is not something that's small and ordinary, something that you can see with a little bit of miracle grow and the right lighting. The promise is otherworldly, beyond your imagination, and you need to hear that and you need to accept that, that all of your heart's deepest woes, all of your deepest anxieties, all of your grandest, most glorious hopes, all of those things are met for you by the one who has created you. He is the one who creates new life for his own glory. The promise associated with hearing and accepting is God's own objective for the world. But you can believe and accept all of these things, but there's one more thing that you need. You can believe and accept that Jesus is the sower, sowing his word, and you can believe and accept that the promise associated with that word is God's glorious objective for the entire world. You can hear and you can accept, but you also need to hear and accept this, that without the grace of God heard and believed, you are utterly ruined. You have to hear and accept that. Your own message for how to be successful in life, your own rationalizations that help you make sense of your life, those things will not suffice. It's the eternal city, and look at the eternal city now. That's your heart. And when we admit this, and when we accept this now, now we're getting someplace. Now you're not merely hearing, but you're receiving. You need to see the desperate state of your heart. And as you see that this sower is sowing with his word, and as you see that the promise of the word is otherworldly, and as you understand yourself as a person with a ruined heart, then, well... Well, then you actually can expect the flourishing of your life. And it's going to happen little by little in the present age. But it'll happen in a great glorious moment when Jesus returns. And when he returns, you will know that flourishing of 30 and 60 and 100 fold. Because only then will you see that ruined heart uh, completely flourishing uh, when you stand before the face of Jesus Christ. But I want to finish by asking us, most of the people here, profess faith in Jesus. And I want to ask, are you worried about your flourishing in this life? Does it not seem the way it should be? Jesus has given us a wonderful list of things to ask about our own hearts. Are there ways in which we are uh, unresponsive uh, un, uh, to God's word? Have we set that word aside? Have we turned it over so that anyone can have it, or have we grabbed it and held tightly to it? Are we unresponsive about the message of Jesus? Are we impulsive? Are we greedily chasing after the word one moment and then greedily chasing after the world in another moment? Are we impulsive like that? Are we grabbing hold of the world but then letting go if it looks like we might lose something with regards to our status in the world? Are we impulsive? Are we preoccupied with the world? 
Are we just too consumed with things that are important, but we've made them ultimate? Are we too consumed with this uh, great pattern of life where we think that if I just get more of this one thing, I'll truly have happiness? Or are we really, really desiring those things that we know are sinful before God and displeasing to Him? There's a warning here in this parable for those who refuse to hear the word. You will never flourish. You will spend your days as a ruined city. But there's a word here for us as Christians. Are we unresponsive? Are we impulsive? And are we preoccupied? Now, Jesus is going to continue teaching in parables, and we'll see more parables next week. But this is the power of, of, of this kind of teaching of Jesus. Now, I want you to go away, and I want you to think about Jesus' explanation for this parable and ask if it's you. Is your heart the heart that has accepted, or is your heart the heart that really wants to hear without accepting? Let me join. Let me... Uh, I ask you to join me in prayer. But Jesus, we do ask that you would help us to uh, treat your word seriously. May we not find great comfort in a profession of faith and then walk away from your word. Would we love your word? And we pray, Jesus, that you would use us as a body to go out into the world and to uh, hold out that word that others might become believers like us. Help us to do that, Jesus, not for our glory or for the glory of this congregation or this church or denomination, but for, the, for your own glory. Do this by the power of your word. Amen.